Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, April 29th, 2013. I'd like to wish Kickstarter a belated happy birthday. Still rocking after four years. I spoke with Bill Torgerson, the creator of a documentary about the mushroom hunter. This dude is good. He turned the tables on me, DJ Grandpa. Stay tuned for our Oprah moment. Hello? Hello. Call me Bill. Okay, Bill. DJ Grandpa here. Good to meet you. Uh, You too, sir. I watched your video and I came up with a lot of questions. Are you the mushroom hunter or is it a documentary about your father? Yeah, the mushroom hunter of the title is my dad. About 15 years ago, my dad had some heart problems. Yes, sir. And he started videotaping his hunts because he had a feeling he wasn't going to be able to hunt anymore. And on one of the tapes, he says, signing off, it's the mushroom hunter. And that's, that's where the title comes from. The mushroom hunter. So you're trying to create this documentary about your father and his cohorts. Yeah, that's right. What would inspire these gentlemen to hunt mushrooms for over 50 years? I think it has a lot more to do with friendship. You know, and I think some guys, they play golf or they have season tickets to a professional sports team. But these guys go out and walk around the woods and look for mushrooms. And it's also, I think, just the way that people look for gold and actually the price of mushrooms is approaching gold. It seems like these days, anywhere from $40 to $150 a pound, they don't sell them. But it's friendship and it's going out into the woods for a walk and it's trying to find something that's pretty difficult to find. How many gentlemen were there on these hunts? There were as many as six or seven. Uh, One woman and uh, two of those hunters have passed away in the last three or four years. And there's only two left. You know, my dad's 75 years old. So there's two left who are able to hunt still. Did they eat any of the mushrooms or anything? Or did they just hunt them and, and catalog them and stuff like that? Yeah, they absolutely eat them. And then there's lots of people who don't have any idea what a morel mushroom is. They look like sponges that are shaped like Christmas trees, I guess, if they're perfectly shaped. Right. You split them in half, and a lot of times you'll fry them with flour and butter. Almost like a thicker, maybe crunchy potato chip. My first impression from watching the video and all that, I thought it was kind of like a getting the band back together type of story. But um, but I guess it's not. But um It still kind of felt like that a little bit. These guys don't spend a lot of time together anymore. On some level, it's difficult for them to get together. And so part of the fun of this weekend when I shot this footage, and I live about 800 miles away from where my father lives, uh, we gathered in one of his friend's basement, and these guys sat around, and they told mushroom hunting stories, and every once in a while I asked them a question. And so from that sense, it definitely was a getting the band back together sort of story. When you were a child... Did you ever go mushroom hunting and did you enjoy it? Well, there's a story they tell that I don't remember. And I went when I was five or six years old and they found some mushrooms and they pointed them out. And I went over and grabbed one and plucked it into my mouth and started eating it, which I'm sure tasted disgusting. And you don't eat them raw. And they're often filled with bugs or ants that have to be soaked out. 
So like a trip that they'll take is they'll leave in the middle of the night and they'll drive up through Wisconsin all the way to the upper peninsula of Michigan and then down the other side of the Great Lakes. And so to me, it was grueling. I was cut with thorns. We picked lime ticks off of each other. We slept in the car. So as an 18 or 19 year old, I did not enjoy it. And so this has also been something that has allowed my father and I to sort of share something when we haven't done that for a while. You know, I was a basketball player and doing a lot of running around town, and I wasn't into going with dad and his friends to go mushroom hunting, which sort of portrays me in a negative light. But I I just didn't get interested in it until very recently, and I only got interested in it because of spending time with my dad and talking to him about this. Okay, now you're an adult. I see these children climbing all around in the video. Any of them yours? Those are my daughters, seven and four, Charlotte and Isabel. Are either of them going to carry on the tradition? Have you taught them this whole mushroom hunting thing? You know, my dad is very passionate about this, and it's something he's sort of done apart from us. And so the shooting of this footage was us really sitting down and listening to him and spending three or four days soaking this up when we've always kind of been like, Dad, that's your thing. We don't care about mushrooms. And so they helped him clean the mushrooms, and they ate some, and they loved the taste. They keep asking me when we're going to go. So we're probably three or four weeks away here in New England from mushroom hunting season, but we're going to try it out. Oh, he must have loved that, man. You know, these are mostly stoic men who, you know, aren't going to express their emotions. And but they certainly were touched emotionally visiting each other. You know, they love each other and they're passionate about doing that together. But they're also coming to a time where they can't do it anymore. And they can't talk about this activity without thinking about their lost friends And so that's when I really started to realize that other people would be interested in this story, even if they're not mushroom hunters. I didn't know my father, and I didn't even really appreciate fathers, period, until I was in college. And I had a friend of mine, a very good friend, and he idolized his dad. I mean, he worshipped the ground that he walked on. That was the first time I think in my life that I realized that a father was important. I have children now, and uh, I have three boys. And, uh, oh man, I mean, <laughs> it's the biggest responsibility I have in my life, you know. What do you think you drew upon being a father, having not known your father? The reason I call myself DJ Grandpa, besides needing an alias to hide behind, my grandfather was the most important father figure that I've ever known. Mm. And that's why I'm DJ Grandpa. And so I would attribute a great deal of who I am to him. Oh, it's a great story. I guess that's why once I made the call to you and you started unraveling your story, I guess it made, you know, it finally made total sense to me. Yeah, there's a really tight connection between why you're DJ Grandpa and why the film is called The Mushroom Hunter. One last question. The music seems to be very important to your story. Would you like to tell me a little bit about it? Sure. Jeremy Vogt does the music. He and I grew up in North Central Indiana. 1989 high school grads, and he went to the rival high school. I lived in Winnemac, Indiana, and so he was the best player on the other team in the county, and we were rivals. And I haven't seen him for 20 years, but we reconnected over social media. It's beautiful music, man. I liked it a great deal. Fantastic. So tell Jeremy. You know. I absolutely will. Thank <laughs> you. Well, Bill, hmm, it's hard to bring the words, man, but I just wanted to say thanks for sharing such a nice story. And for anyone who's interested in his story, please check out his Kickstarter. It's called The Mushroom Hunter. And thanks for coming on the show, sir. All right. Take care.
Welcome back to the show. I'm speaking with Matt Tolnick of Lawless Jerky from Santa Monica, California. He has a Kickstarter going on right now, and he's raising funds to turn the lawless nature of his brand lawful. At least that's what I believe. Welcome to the show, Matt. Oh, thanks so much for having me, DJ Grandpa. Happy to be in the crib. Ah, thanks, man. I'm happy to have you here. Just please tell me about your true calling. It's lawless jerky. It's making artisan handcrafted beef jerky to distribute not just to friends anymore. I want to get it to everyone. And I've chosen Kickstarter as the medium for taking my next step. Lawless jerky, you know, comes in six flavors. Our motto is a braver flavor. So uh, we try to you know, include some of the old favorites, but do them with a twist. For example, like a pepper jerky, we make bacon, salt, and pepper. And then we come up with completely new things. Like we've got a Japanese curry jerky, which it was the first flavor I ever really perfected, but it's the only one that's going to be available for commercial sales in the world. Now, how long have you been in business? We're looking to make our first commercial order and get in business. To this point, it's just been a jerky endeavor, making it in my kitchen, handing it out to friends. So I haven't been selling to this point. And that's what's exciting to me, having a product, you know, in my hand that is, you know, lawful and that I can go out and uh, shop to stores, shop to other online distributors, sell on my own online site. So that's the big opportunity. And with the amount raised, it will help me make the minimum order from a commercial facility that's, you know, regulated by the USDA. Now, Mm -hmm. please tell me, I watched a video. It is hilarious. It's very weird, though. Very strange. That's one way of putting it, sure. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Come on, man. Give me more. Give me more. What's the question? Do we have a pending (laughs) question here? No, we don't have a question, but... How did the video kind of come to be? What was the premise? Why did we go with that crazy chicken? All that? Man, you're a genius. You're reading my mind. Well, I was thinking of different ideas for the Kickstarter video. I wanted it to be something that would have the ability to maybe, if I did it right, go viral. Now, long story short, I was going for something a little bit different, a little bit quirky. I had seen and studied a lot of the different videos people have done on Kickstarter, and I just found them to be a little bit too much of a documentary for me. I wanted there to be some more humor involved. You know, I guess not everyone is familiar with the uh, Chick-fil-A cows. Chick-fil-A runs a series of commercials as like their main mascot are cows, even though they sell chicken. And at first, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's probably not the greatest campaign for that reason. And basically, it's chickens trying to save themselves. Don't eat hamburgers. Don't eat whatever else. Eat chicken. So you've got these chickens that are, you know, somewhat literate, uh, poorly spelling words, communicating their uh preference that you eat chicken to the Chick-fil-A customers. So that was the original and we tried to parody it. So we're making beef jerky exclusively. We're not making chicken jerky. So we're making beef jerky. We thought we'd, you know, turn the table and have a chicken sell cow. That's ingenious, man. You put a lot of thought into that. When I first had the video complete, I took a look at it and, you know, was a little concerned. Is the chicken distracting? Is there too much chicken? Are people going to be missing what I'm saying? But people have written in with positive reviews about the video that that was the main reason why they donated. I contacted you because of the lawless word. That was the marketing that got me. And then when I pressed the button, you know, I pressed play. And when I saw the chicken, I I, I was totally sold. It it was over for me at that point. (laughs) It's still an odd pairing or an odd contradiction in terms to me, if that's even the right phrase. How do you get from lawyer to jerky king? I had practiced as a lawyer for 
several years prior to doing this. And the opportunities that were available to me to both make me you know, happy and successful in any other ways I wanted to be successful through the law, it just really wasn't there. And that kind of crystallized to me when a significant other who saw me at you know, some of my lowest times where I was really pushing myself to do a job that really wasn't making me happy and was kind of bringing me down. You know, they just kind of had to sit down with me and told me what they saw. And, and this person told you that you were at your happiest when you were eating jerky. Not in so many words, but um, beef jerky was always the thing that I made, that I crafted myself, that I made best. And that's a common story in people who go into jerky. Oh, my friends always told me I made the best jerky, so I made jerky. So, but um, I guess the twist on mine is that, you know, they told me that enough, you know, that I was pulled from a career that I had invested a lot of time and money to go to law school and all that and effort and anxiety and everything it takes to become a lawyer, to leave that and to try to do something that, to my knowledge, no lawyer has ever tried to do and start a beef jerky business after practicing. I'm talking to Matt Talnick of Lawless Jerky. Please check out his page on Kickstarter. I mean, a very interesting video. And if you can't find it, you can always go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to introduce Samantha Snaves and Matthew Fiedler. They're two of six of the founders of Re3D. They have a huge 3D printer on Kickstarter. It's called the Gigabot. I'm very excited about it. I've watched the video several times. I wish I had one. Maybe I need to get one. I know someone in my house could definitely use one. I want to say welcome to the show. Nice to meet you. I'm here in Santiago, Chile with my partner, our chief hacker, Matthew Fiedler. What is the Gigabot? It's an affordable large format 3D printer. So there's actually um, 3D printing been around for a while. There's some really fabulous companies that have been doing 3D printing. Unfortunately, the, the machinery is pretty expensive. And what some people, particularly in the hacker and the maker community, have been doing in the last couple of years is thinking about maybe how there could be a more affordable version of that technology that's more accessible to people. Right. And what we basically did is, is using a lot of the inspiration and, and direction that the maker community has provided, we built the biggest one that's available right now at that low cost point. I was really interested in doing this because just in my conversations with some friends in, in countries that expressed an interest in 3D printing, it seems like there's a need to make maybe objects that are bigger than just the objects that the hobbyist community was currently making with 3D printing. One thing I was really interested in what personally was the ability to make maybe a composting toilet. Secondly, we're kind of pursuing this large format printing capability, which opens doors to a lot of people, such as the guys trying to make prosthetics. And at the same time, enables maybe some of our friends that need to make bigger functional items that's traditionally being explored with our platform while we look at new materials testing as well. What is the coolest thing you've ever seen made with the bot? I just get excited every time I make something with Gigabot because you're taking an idea and you're bringing it into the world. And this is a powerful tool, especially for children and really for anyone who has an imagination because Gigabot runs on imagination. And you're able to build things with this device that are impossible through any other manufacturing technology that is traditionally done. And it has to do with how Gigabot creates things. Now, Gigabot makes things layer by layer by layer. 
So if you imagine an object sitting in front of you, maybe your coffee cup, what Gigabyte does is it starts at the bottom of the coffee cup and it draws the outline and it'll move up just a little bit and it'll do another outline. And we're making things out of plastic right now. And it's fun just to watch it build an object, but every single object that we make that's new, whether it be a, a model of a, a skyscraper or we're making a vase for flowers or we're making functional tools that can be used, it's just amazing to see an idea and a computer image come to life right in front of you and as a three-dimensional object that you can use. It sounds as though you said that this 3D printing technology is not new. It seems like on Kickstarter, there's like a 3D printing revolution going on. <laughs> 3D printing has been around for 30 years, in fact, in industry, but only in the last couple of years, and about the same time that Kickstarter came online, has 3D printers been accessible to the home market. And through the advent of new software and figuring out some of this hardware, how we can have either a small desktop 3D printer in your house or how you can have a gigabyte in your garage. So it really has been only in the last couple of years that you see the advent of 3D printing in the consumer market. But we're looking to the future, and that looks amazingly bright. We're on this technology curve that is growing exponentially with the use of 3D printing. The different types of materials that are accessible to be used in 3D printers and the uses of them, the applied technology, so looking at the medical industry, looking at the average home consumer market, looking at small businesses and manufacturing, 3D printed parts are on the new Boeing 787 Dreamliner. So there's all different phases and levels of manufacturing and the ability for people to get involved in 3D printing. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys and learning about 3D printing. Uh, like I said, it seems to be a revolution going on on Kickstarter right now. 3D everything, pens, uh, filament makers, and printers. Um, but I was very excited about yours, so I really appreciate the interview. Thank you guys very much for coming on The Crib. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mike Celestino, and I was co-director last year of a short documentary called The Last Days of Cinerama. But now I am directing a feature documentary about comedy. Well, one particular aspect of comedy that people have been talking a lot about lately. In your movie, your trailer that I watched on Kickstarter, it seems that comics feel as though they're under fire. They're under pressure. Why do you think that is? Well, there have been a lot of incidents in the last, I would say, three or four years where a comedian has gotten in trouble for what has been perceived as crossing the line or going too far in terms of the subject matter of their material or the jokes themselves. A big part of my plan for the movie is to examine the history of what the boundaries have been in comedy. I mean, you look at uh, Richard Pryor or George Carlin or uh, Lenny Bruce, some of those guys were put into jail for breaking obscenity laws in their comedy. Now, comics don't have to deal with that nowadays. For the most part, the government is keeping out of this argument. And some of our interview subjects have had a lot to say about the difference between government censorship and what they call 
social censorship. Is this political correctness? Political correctness is a very, very big part of it, for sure, yes. Why do you want to get into the middle of this topic? I'll give you my thesis statement in making this movie. I believe comedy to be a force of good. And I think it's a shame that the people who are getting riled up by people saying certain things in comedy usually tend to be on the same side politically and socially as the comedian making the joke. Are you familiar with what happened with The Onion around the Oscars this year? Are you talking about the instance with the little girl and being called a name? Yeah. Oh, yes. I had a podcast at The Post, and they said it was deplorable. That's kind of my point, is that the observation they were making with that joke was that it is a ridiculous thing to call an innocuous little girl, an innocent little girl, that name. Right. That is ridiculous, and that's the joke. And the joke was satirizing the very culture that the people who got upset about the joke are against. So the first line of our trailer is Paul Provenza saying, paraphrasing Steve Allen, he says, a lot of wars are fought between the good and the good. Right. And that's kind of our thesis statement here, because like I was saying, the people who got upset at that joke kind of missed the point of that joke to me. Okay, well then I have to ask you, if people are missing the joke, if they're missing the punchline, is there something inherently wrong with the joke? I don't think that matters, honestly, it because doesn't? intent is such a difficult thing to define and to contextualize. There are so many shades of gray here, and it's, and it's impossible to draw a line between, well, was this a good joke or a bad joke? Was it a funny joke? Was it an unfunny joke? Basically, some people are going to get it, and some people are going to appreciate it, and a lot of people aren't. I have a phrase that I use that most people don't seem to want to accept. We're all part of the problem. You just can't go after the violence and the vulgarity and the whatever from rappers or just from comedians or just from people like uh, the latest action hero of the moment, the video games. It's all of us and we all buy into it. I guess all I'm trying to say, if comedians feel that they're getting hit hard, maybe that's a precursor to all of us in our different trades soon to be hit hard. You know, violence has existed for a very long time before video games came along, you know? And I think that same argument applies to what we're talking about in comedy. That's true. All these subjects that are being covered weren't caused by comedians making jokes about them. Uh, media and art have a uh, symbiotic relationship with culture at large. They both feed into each other. And as you said, you can't place all the blame squarely in one place. I'm not trying to knock your point of view because, dude, I've said some very offensive things during my life. You know? <laughs> and that, I mean, that's a big part of what I'm setting out to say as well, is that what people consider offensive is very, very subjective. You might be offended by profanity, where someone else might be offended by someone making fun of religion. You know, I've had people comment on our trailer saying that they were recent until... Jackie Creation said that suicide was funny. 
Right. Uh, now, I was surprised by that. I didn't think that would be the one in that whole long list of things. I didn't think that would be the one that people would get up in arms about. So, And that's kind of my point, too, is that it's very, very difficult to say, well, you can't make fun of this one thing because everyone has that one thing. And it's True. always different. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. I'm in total agreement with you on that. I mean, dude, yeah. I'm a producer just like you, except right. I don't do docs. I do music. Gotcha. And I you do I, music, yeah. Right. And at times I've done very profane music and there are people who look at me and say, How could you do such a thing? And then I look at them and the next thing you know I see them going on the dance floor dancing to the most profane record that's on the charts right now because that person right. is quote unquote successful, uh, big and I may not be as you know. Right. I'm in total agreement with your doc. I'm just trying to, um, I don't know. I was just trying to get an interesting conversation out of you. And, uh, sure. You know, no, hey. yeah. No, look, I, I love talking about it. That's why I'm making the movie, and that's why I agreed to the interview. Talking about comedy, it's my favorite thing to do in the world. So Wow. Well, then you're <laughs> the perfect person for the doc. I, so I'm all right. in for comedians. I'm all in for art. Sure. I would just like a diversity. And, and that's my only complaint about maybe this day and time, this generation. I just don't. Okay. See a diversity. I see I see a horde of uh independence. You know, they're all claiming their independence, but they're all running with the pack. They're all running in one direction. And that's my only complaint. I can see your point there. Mike, I just wanted to say thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, sir. I'd like to welcome the group Flutronics to this show. Welcome, ladies. Hi, hi. Now, you have had two Kickstarter programs, and that's pretty cool to me as musicians that you ladies have done this. And so I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about your Kickstarter experience. Well, this is Allison here. The first time we used Kickstarter... We had a very positive experience. It was a smaller campaign than our second. That was kind of our, our introduction to it, but it was successful. And we learned then that, you know, one of the tricks was really engaging your backers on a regular basis, keeping them updated, keeping them informed. So this time around, we had a, a much bigger goal for a much more ambitious project. So we knew that we had to do the same thing, only multiply that by like five, <laughs> ten. Did you like the whole crowdfunding experience? This is Natalie. <laughs> I think definitely it's a really positive thing, particularly when you're preparing to do a really big creative project to have so many people engaged and, and supportive of what you're doing. So it's very hard work to really raise all that money, as is any fundraising campaign, whether it's crowdfunding or not. But I think what was really like amazing about it was just that 
to see so many people giving to a project that they also believed in and then becoming active fundraisers for us as well. So, you know, in that sense, it was really a, a wonderful experience. Is that music playing in the background? You guys yeah. like recording the album right now or something? We're mixing the album right now, <laughs> yeah. so we are in the studio. We're, studio. We're, we're in a separate room, but there's there's mixing happening right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm I'm getting an indication. Okay. <laughs> it is happening. It is real. <laughs> in reading your bio. I see that you ladies are educators. How do you motivate the youth? What I'm hoping we're able to convey is that we're able to like marry our, our classical training to this more contemporary sound in a way that is fun, different, very creative. And my mm-hmm. hope is that, you know, when we work with these kids, that they can see, like if we're in a band classroom, for example, my hope is that they can see that there are really limitless possibilities with their music making even when you're younger, you think, okay, I play the flute or the trumpet. Um, I hear the flute and trumpet and band music and orchestra music and maybe some jazz, and that's really it. Right. And these aren't really necessarily musical genres that I'm crazy about. So, you know, it, it helps to kind of see the instrument used in a way in music that, you know, they already listen to or in a style that they already listen to and how it can successfully work together. That's definitely true for the younger students that we work with. And again, with the older students, the university level students that we work with, we are definitely hoping to empower the next generation of musicians to really take control of their careers and really their destiny as, you know, aspiring professional musicians. And the last question, what would you like to say to your fans and those who backed you on Kickstarter? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you is definitely the biggest thing that comes to mind. This record really does mean a lot to us. And as Allison mentioned, it's a much more ambitious endeavor than our first album. It was wonderful to have their support and even just acquiring the funds. And it really motivated us and, and has pushed us to really bring this album to the next level. It's called 2.0 for exactly that reason. We're trying to really present a new version of ourselves, uh, a new and improved version. And we are doing our very best to make sure that we make everyone very proud of the project they supported and of the work that we've done here. Natalie and Allison, I'd like to say thank you for coming on The Crib. I've been talking to Flutronics. They're a duo of flutists, but they experiment with all different types of music, and it's pretty interesting. So if you'd like to check them out, go to kickstarter.com, type in Flutronics. They have an album coming out shortly. Ladies, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, next up, we have Brent Garcia and his gadgety gadget, a knotless gear tie call, the Fishbone. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Fishbone, the name of the MacGyverish gadget that you have, knotless gear tie. That name mm-hmm. is a great title, and that's worth money alone to me. It actually started as a coat hanger. I started doodling on my iPad, and then I took it to a coat hanger. I saw, I said, well, this thing works great, but no one's going to buy a coat hanger. And so I thought, well, this same concept would work if it was a flat piece of metal. It was looking like a fish, so that's why I call it the fish bone. Your gear tie, now it can be used for camping equipment and bundles and things of that nature, backpacks. This particular fish bone design 
if you want just a, a simple tie, you can use a single piece, or if you expect a little heavier load, you can stack three of them together and use it the same way, you know, reinforcing what it is yes, you're sir. doing. Now, of course, we don't market it as a load-bearing application because, you know, someone's going to try to tow gotcha. a car and, you know, we'll end up in court. But it does have that potential to be used for more than what you would just tie a sweater to a backpack. Is it simple to use? It's a simple design. And when, you know, I came about it by surprise uh, when I was working with the coat hanger. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this works great. And I ran upstairs and I told Laura, my wife, and I was like, look at this. Look what I made. And, of course, it's just one of the, you know, thousands of the things that I've come running in the house with from the garage saying, look what I made. And she's like, very nice, Brent. To her, it's the same thing. It's just another idea. Did your wife like, yeah, yeah, thanks, Brett. I'm kind of busy here. You know, another one of your uh, crackpot ideas or something like that. Or was she like your biggest fan? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, if you call it uh, my biggest fan. She, <laughs> <laughs> We've been married uh, going on uh, 13 years this year. Oh, and uh, so she's nice enough to, you know, to, to pause her show and, and to turn on the nightlight or whatever. <laughs> pause her show. Yeah. And she'll look at it and she'll say, this is nice, baby. You know, good job. Get and then I'll go way. off again, you know. <laughs> you asked for a small amount on Kickstarter and you raised nearly 90 times the amount that you were asking for. How does that feel? When I put it on Kickstarter and I got that, I couldn't believe it. It just blows my mind. To me, it's just another idea. Yes. But I guess it comes off differently to people who see it. What would you like to say to your supporters on Kickstarter? First off, I'd like to say thanks for, for the opportunity. When you see someone online, you really don't know who they are. You can do some digging to see what they're all about and, and where they've been. But ultimately, at least in my case, I'm just a guy in his garage that was tinkering and came up with this idea. And then once I presented it to them, it was good enough for them to put a dollar behind it, which uh, takes a pretty good leap of faith being that you never met this guy. He's never put anything out before. And that's really who I am, a single person. But everyone giving me that opportunity gives me the chance to be bigger than that and to be able to get my reach out there with my ideas. And so basically, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for having that faith in me. Now, you seem to still be pretty level-headed, a reasonable guy. But how has this experience changed you? Are you ruder to people now? Has the money made you, you know, like overconfident or something like that? You don't want to change who you are. I'm still that guy who wants to make one thing a week. I'm still that guy who wants to make that amateur jewelry piece for my daughter, for maybe a friend. It's great. It's awesome. But still, I'm still going to be who I am. I'm not that guy who's going to be like, you know, popping my collar and peeling off in my Mercedes. <laughs> That's not me. That's not me. You'll still find me in the garage, you know, with the hammer and a file. Okay. I'd like to see you pop off in that Mercedes a little bit. That'd be kind of, <laughs> that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Now, one thing I wanted to throw out there is there's plenty of folks who have a great idea as far as an invention or an object that they can offer up to make everyone's life a little easier. Yes, sir. People, uh, at least in the traditional sense, they'll spend thousands on top of thousands of dollars to get an item marketed, to get research done behind it, to get drawings made up. In this case, uh, the fish phone cost me uh, about $11. And now, especially in this day and age, you don't have to spend so much money to get an idea on the table. You can make a prototype and you can present it, and if people want it, then they'll let you know and they'll, they'll put that back in behind it. So the days of production as we know them, those are going up in smoke. Now it's anybody with an idea can potentially get that going. You're on the cast basically because you've had success, and part of the reason 
of the cast is because there's always these questions, people wanting to know, well, how did they get to where they are? Well, well, how did they get this done? Well, how did they promote it so well that he got 90 times what he asked for? And you just gave away a secret, you know, don't spend so much money in development because there are virtual 3D modeling or whatever type of software and there are even free sites that help you with this whole process and like you said exactly. the DIY exactly. community so the world is changing it's incredible hopefully we all can keep up everyone who comes on this show has a piece of the puzzle and you just gave me or us the listener a piece of that puzzle thank you very much sir thanks for having me This is Ted Sirota, um, drummer here in Chicago. I have a band called Ted Sirota's Heavyweight Dub. Pretty new band that we put together. I love the scientists. Of all the dub mixers and dub chemists, or however you want to term it, the scientist to me, he was the most... King Tubby was great, and he was a genius, and then I think the scientists took it to the next level. So, What is a day in the life of a Kickstarter fundraising neophyte entail? Times when I'm supposed to be doing something else, you know, I'm trying to think of ideas of people that I can reach out to or, you know, media outlets or connections of some sort that could put things more on the fast track, you know. Right. And then it's just executing those ideas like, wait a minute, oh yeah, that guy, you know, he said this, you know, and he likes reggae or, you know, this person's connected to this person. And so it's a lot of appointments, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, and then just constantly... You know, trying to put it out there because the clock is ticking and it's literally like time is money on this thing. Now, did you think it would be as it is right now? I didn't really have time to think about what it was going to be like because I talked to Hopeton on uh, Saturday. That's the sign. On Monday. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, his, right. his name is uh, Hopeton Overton Brown. Gotcha. But um, I talked to him on a Saturday and by Monday I was already putting the Kickstarter together. And then I think it launched by Thursday, so I didn't have time to fret and worry or, or think about it. I just looked at some of the other projects that were up there, right. and I sort of browsed Kickstarter and looked around, did some research. You know, I thought, well, I think this could work. Now, how much time, as far as research, did you have before you started your own campaign? Oh, maybe like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the life of a true musician, I'm thinking. <laughs> You know, it was like, okay, I have this possibility to make a dub record with, you know, next to King Tubby, the greatest dub engineer, in my opinion. Right. And um, what do I do now? Just wait and then start shopping around to labels and say, hey, would you be interested in this idea? You know, I just figured, well, we got to strike while the iron's hot. Ted Sirota's heavyweight dub. That's a good name, man. You got the marketing like down it? on it. Yeah, yeah. Good footprint, man. Good footprint. The scientist, he actually had a record called Heavyweight Dub Champion. And there's other people who use that heavyweight moniker. So I figured if I put my name in front of it, then there's no way I could have the exact same name as anybody else down the road, you know. And you've known the scientist how long now? I think like three weeks. <laughs> you're killing me you're killing me with this story man I, i'm coming into it thinking oh man 
Ted's has all this experience and the scientist has all this, but it's like you guys just ran into each other on the subway or something. <laughs> all of a sudden. I guess maybe you don't know how I hooked up with him, do you? Please tell me how you hooked up with the scientist. I want to know. I was just online, you know, just browsing around. I don't even remember what I was doing, but I came across an interview with him. And, you know, after reading it, it was like, I got to hook up with this guy. You know, he's out there. He's in the U.S. I thought he was in Maryland because that's right. what his the last bio I saw said about him. In that interview, there was a link to dubmusic.com. It was kind of clear, I guess, that it was his website. But when you go there, you don't really know what's going on. <laughs> I don't think for sure. It doesn't. Right. It's not like his website. But, uh, you know, it was kind of hard to find the contact form even on there. And I eventually I scrounged around, found it, and I just wrote an email to this contact. I didn't know if it was going to go to him or who, but I just said, hey, you know, I'm a huge fan. I, you know, appreciate, you know, the work that you've done. And I've started this band here in Chicago. And, uh, you know, it would be great to hook up with you at some point or that kind of thing, just reaching out. And I forgot about it, actually. And then about two months later, I'm checking my messages, and I use uh, Google Talk my uh, voicemail and it tries to transcribe messages so you don't have to listen to them but you can read them you know but it's always wrong yes i have that. and it says fred luba mrs scientist call me and i'm like fred luba mrs scientist is this like one of my kids science teachers or something you know but i'm like no it's a la number that's weird so then i played it and listened to it and it was like ted this is scientist call me back you know and i was like oh shit <laughs> So then I called him back, and uh, he gets people calling in, contacting him from out of the blue all the time. So he's, of course, a little skeptical. But he said, first, I'm going to send you some of the stuff I've been working on so you can hear what I've been doing. Right. And he said, then send me some of your stuff. So I sent him some tracks from a live gig that we had just done. And I was expecting, well, maybe I'll hear back from him in a week or a month or maybe not. But then, like, five minutes later... He called back and was like, Ted, the music is great. So he's like, well, so what would you want to do? And I said, well, ideally, I'd like to bring you to Chicago yeah. to record and mix our album and maybe do a show while you're here. I know that since you and the scientists have known each other like 48 hours, two weeks, whatever, you've had time uh -huh. to reason on the music. What consensus have the two of you come up to for what this new album is supposed to envision or be like? We did agree and right from the start about the sound of it and the vibe of it, you know. And my thing is that I've sort of lost interest in a lot of reggae since the early 90s because, you know, I do like some dance hall, but the overall trajectory of the, of the music, I think, has gotten away from its roots, which is musicianship and soulfulness, you know. And now you listen to stuff and it, I told him it sounded, a lot of it sounds anemic to me, and he was cracking up. He was like, yes, you need some vitamin, you know? <laughs> yeah. So the era that I'm really enamored with is like early 70s to the early 80s, and I don't want to become like a, uh, a tribute band in that way. It's just I want to recall that sound and then do my, you know, my own thing from there. Ted Sirota, you and the legendary dub master the scientist thanks for coming on the show and thanks for representing the scientist thank you sir
And now it's time for DJ Grandpa's favorite part of the show, the dreaded elevator pitch. In the elevator this week, we have Ryan Schoon with his tabletop RPG, Idara, a steampunk renaissance. But first up, boys and girls, let's learn a little bit about elevator pitches. One of my listeners, the smart little kid named Devin, took it upon himself to write a pitch about elevator pitches. You know, I invited him on the show to share it with us. Let's give a listen to Devin and then check out Ryan's elevator pitch. This is pretty much an elevator pitch about elevator pitches. So, an elevator pitch must only take up the amount of time of an elevator ride that goes up six floors. It must be up to date and in sync with the audience, which means you will have to change it often. It must be so simple that anyone would be able to understand it except a baby that does not know how to speak. You have to hit every aspect and every point in a short amount of time. This can make the biggest difference in the world for advertising. For example, you might need an elevator pitch to promote a new product. Such as a Kickstarter, yes. Go on. That's it? Um, yes. <laughs> okay, when you said succinct, or when you implied succinct, you meant it. I can understand it. That was a great elevator pitch. I applaud you, and thank you very much for coming on the crib. Thank you. So, Ryan, I want to ask you, why do you deserve the money? Uh, this is the most unique tabletop RPG that you will see this year, or really any year. It exists in a world where fantasy meets science fiction, kind of like Tolkien meeting Steam Boy, something that's never been done before, really in any genre of game. The rich history of our world is built into it from the ground up, right from character creation. You feel tied to the events happening in the world. You feel tied to the world itself. Our D12 system is easy. It's fun to learn and it's fun to play. It offers complexity for players that are experienced in other games. We have content releasing every couple of months so that you never run out of something to do. Our goal was to make a world that is fun to explore and a game that is fun to play. There's only a few days left to fund the Kickstarter campaign. We're giving out great rewards, including promotional artwork, collector's edition copies of the book, signed pieces, Really, everything you need to play, you can find in the Kickstarter campaign. You'll never see anything like this anywhere else. You'll never find a game that captures the real theme of steampunk like we've been able to do with Adara, a steampunk renaissance. When you think about our renaissance, the Italian renaissance, you think of the great inventors, the great painters, the great artists. Well, what if they had this science fiction component, this steampunk style that they could have worked with? What could Leonardo da Vinci have actually created if he was given this science fiction-like technology, he could have built flying machines, helicopters. Who knows what he would have come up with? And that's kind of where we're going with this. That's the beauty of the system and the world that we've created. You've got these inventors and these painters and these artists coming out of the woodwork, and you're showing off a side of steampunk that you don't normally see in TV shows and other games. Okay. All right. I think I'm getting the point of this. So... Go to kickstarter.com and check out. It's Idara, right? Absolutely. And you can always follow us on Twitter at Project Idara. Wow. All from the mind of Ryan and Celestis Designs. Okay, I understand it. 
Well, I'm getting ready to step off this elevator. I think maybe you're headed to a different floor. I'll have someone see you out, and uh, thanks for the pitch. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. No problem. I'd like to thank all our guests this week, and a special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams for contributing the theme song to DJ Grandpa's Crib. I'd also like to thank Theron Kennedy, our Director of Marketing. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus. Thank you.